Hello, good evening. Welcome. <laughs> it is the second anniversary for Golden Beer Talks tonight. <laughs> and we are going to get started. First, we want to thank uh, the crew here at the Windy Saddle because they always take such good care of us and sponsor and promote our events. Yay. We want to thank Golden.com because they promote our events and they also better our community every single day. If you're not signed up for the newsletters from Golden.com, you need to go to their website and get yourself signed up. And here's a, an email list if you'd like to sign up for our list. If you sign up for this list, all you'll get is two emails a month telling you who's speaking and when they're coming to speak at Golden Beer Talks. We don't ever use it for anything else. So if you want to be on that list, please sign. There's a few of those around the room. There are also little cards around the room if you want to give a suggestion for a potential speaker. And so we have a bunch of those. If you have some thoughts, please fill one out and just leave it on one of the tables and we'll grab it. We have pint glasses that you can buy, a set of four for $20. If you're starting to think about your Christmas giving or something to drink out of. <laughs> And next month, our speaker is one of the engineers from the Atomic Clock at the National Institutes for Statistics and Technology. So, um, will we start on time? And we will <laughs> we'll, we'll check the Atomic Clock, and we'll try to start on time. It's a very good point, Dr. Dale. <laughs> We're going to get some mileage out of that one. All right. <laughs> our brewery tonight is Mountain Toad and I'm going to bring up Barb who's going to do our beer ambassador duties she is our deputy chief of mission because our ambassador is out of town good evening I'm filling in for my husband Frank tonight who's off winging his way to Baltimore earning a living our featured brewery tonight, as Whitney already said, is Mountain Toad. Our beers are Padalon Pale Ale and Coal Creek Black IPA. Both very nice beers, quite different in the comparison of the crispness of the petal on Pale Ale versus the malty bitterness of the IPA. Now, Frank has left me a, a, a scholarly treatise on bitterness. He thought you'd all want to hear about international bitterness units tonight, and I'm going to read it to you, but I think I'm going to leave out the scholarly annotations. So if you'd like to know where he got all this information, come to me and I will tell you the, the references. First of all, um, bitterness. He was following up on the issue of bitterness and how it is measured or estimated or inferred, and bitterness is given to the beer by the hops used in the brewing process. Bitterness is measured in IBUs, or International Bitterness Units. IBUs start at zero, and in theory is open-ended at the top, but commonly in the 110 to 120 range, IBUs is considered the, 110 to 120 IBUs is considered the max for two reasons. The bitterness compounds are only slightly soluble in water, water being the majority of beer, and taste buds also max out at some point, around 110 or 120. Second point, typical American light lager, such as Budweiser, would have about 10 IBUs. Many craft beers are in the 20 to 40 range, including some IPAs and double strong IPAs, which go into the 60 to 90 IBU range. Uh, IBU can be measured using an 
I saw octane extraction <laughs> and spectrophotometer measurement of the bitterness compounds. I saw humiloids <laughs> in a standard process set by the American Society of Brewing Chemists. <clears throat> oh, Frank. Oh, Frank. <laughs> Many home brewers and some craft brewers estimate IBUs based on equations from the amount of time hops are boiled in the brewing process and based on the alpha acid content of the hops, where the acid, or alpha acid content of the hops is estimated and available in standard lookup tables. However, hops do age, so lose potency, and also estimated bitterness can vary from batch to batch of hops. However, Perception of bitterness will vary based on other ingredients in the beer, so a very malty beer will typically taste less bitter, even at the same bitterness units as a less malty beer. So 80 IBUs in a pale ale will typically taste more bitter than 80 IBUs in our black pale ale, which is on offer tonight. Now, thank you. Thank you, Frank. Now I'm going to go to the lighter side, the stuff that I usually tell, which is events. Um, Golden City Brewery is having a chili cook-off this Saturday starting at noon, and the proceeds go to the food bank of the Golden Christian Action Guild, um, whose refrigerator recently broke, so they really need um, the money that is raised by this chili cook-off. And then the very next day, Golden City Brewery again is having a yappy hour uh, from two to five on Sunday to benefit the Safe Harbor Lab Rescue. So those of you with labs are particularly invited to bring your labs for the yappy hour. Then on Halloween, um, that's Golden City Brewery's 22nd anniversary. And they're going to be selling $2 pints and $4 growlers. And they're also going to have a costume contest where you can get your picture taken. It goes on Facebook. People vote. And the winner probably wins something beer-related. And Cannonball Creek is also having a Halloween party with a costume contest, but um, I don't have any details on that. I specifically asked um, Mountain Toad and uh, Barrels and Bottles, and they are not having Halloween parties. So there you go. There's our beer social calendar. And now I'm going to turn this over to Brett, who you don't see that often because they go home to be with their uh, children. But Brett and Deanne are the owners of Windy Saddle and... Uh, Brett is going to introduce our speaker tonight. So thank you. Thank you all for coming. Um, we've had a few roasters in our nine, almost nine years here. And um, Kaladi Coffee has been our roaster for about the last five years, I think, maybe four, four or five years. And um, Mark Overly is the uh, co-owner of Kaladi Coffee and Roasters in Denver. And... Um, he got his start in Alaska. I don't know if anyone here is familiar with uh, Kaladi in Alaska, but they started a long time ago in Alaska and became so successful and it became so big that Mark said, nope, this isn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a craft, and this is kind of a similarity with beer here because we're talking about all these craft brewers. Well, he's a craft roaster, and Kaladi in Alaska turned into a macro roaster, and he said, nope, that's not what I want to do. So he came back to um, Denver and with his partner, Andy, got back into doing craft roasting. And so they've got a handful of accounts. They, um, they're awesome. They're in the DU area. Uh, we we want to specialize here in other stuff. We leave roasters like Marco to do the, the hard stuff. But anyway, super excited to have him talk to you tonight. He's going to probably talk about 
his trip to Sumatra, where he did some some touring of the uh, plantations, and it's going to be an exciting talk, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, Mark. Thank you, Brett. <clears throat> well, uh, following up on the Alaska theme, um, former Governor Jay Hammond, uh, arguably the best governor Alaska ever had, uh, many years after his governorship was at a bookstore in Anchorage, and it was just kind of thumbing through the shelves, and the clerk behind the counter just kept on looking at him and looking at him. And finally, Jay picked out a book and goes up to the cash register, and the clerk says, didn't you used to be somebody once? <laughs> so I like, that's what I like to kind of follow up on with, with our little roasting operation in, in Denver. I always like, well, you know, we may be nobody here, but I was somebody somewhere else. So anyway, uh, as Brett said, um, originally started off in Alaska and then uh, moved down here in 2000 um, and uh, started off uh, a new roasting operation. But enough about that. I think it's safe to say we're all of a certain age here that we can remember back when coffee was really bad. <laughs> you remember that? I mean, it was bad. It came in a can. It was only a few different coffee companies. It's the, uh, what we had, we had uh, Chase and Sanborn, Folgers, Hills Brothers, Maxwell House. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, in coffee, that, in those days, coffee got so bad, there was a famous commercial where they secretly replaced Folgers Instant Crystals with their regular coffee, and nobody noticed. That's how bad coffee was. So think back when you had your first really good cup of coffee. Maybe you're in some kind of little cafe, breakfast place, and instead of being thin, acidy, smells like a wet ashtray kind of coffee, it was, it was delicious, and it made you stop. And in fact, you stopped, and when the, maybe the server came by and said, hey, what is this coffee? You remember that? Did anybody have that experience? And I bet you they said one of three things. They probably said either French roast, Kenya, or Sumatra. That fair? Pretty, pretty fair. That was like the three big coffees back in the day. Well, of course, as soon as they said that, you said to yourself, French roast, French roast, French roast. Must remember French roast. Must remember French roast. And everywhere you went, you would say, do you have any French roast? Do you have French roast coffee? Do you have? And then you learned that French roast was kind of an anomalous term for any dark roasted coffee. But the other two coffees, Kenya and Sumatra, are, were our first, first two countries that kind of entered into coffee consciousness. Because before, it was just a brand of coffee that was in a can. We never even really thought about where the coffee came from, with the exception of Juan Valdez and his donkey. But beyond that, coffee was just something that, was, that you bought with a coupon, or whoever had the cheapest can, that's what you bought. Well, it's interesting that it was Kenya and Sumatra, because Kenya actually was the uh, last place, one of the last countries that coffee was introduced to. And um, 
it, it actually began really not far away from Kenya. Uh, coffee originated in, in uh, what's today Ethiopia. Back then was known as uh, Arabia Felix. Uh, in fact, there's about 100 different types of coffee trees uh, that are indigenous to northern Africa. Only two or three of them are commercially viable. And it was, it's felt that the one that was out of Ethiopia was the one that was the most prized. It, was, it had the best flavor out of all of it, out of all the other coffee trees. And it became Arabia, uh, the Arabia Felix name uh, continues in the name of that coffee. It's called Coffee Arabica. However, it was not Ethiopia that, that uh, first cultivated coffee. It was in the country north in Yemen where coffee was first cultivated. And so really quickly, I'm going to give you a, a quick uh, history and, and uh, a quick explanation of what the coffee tree is. Okay, so the coffee tree is actually not a tree. It's a bush. It's an evergreen shrub. It's an evergreen shrub that grows along the equator between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. Um, but prefers uh, higher elevations because as an evergreen shrub, as its name implies, it does not drop any leaves. And if you've ever been to the equatorial regions, you know there are a few bugs in the equatorial regions. And so uh, it prefers to be up at higher elevations in the cooler temperatures away from some of the bugs. And it has its own little bug defense uh, that we actually kind of like quite a bit. It's called caffeine. So many of these Many of these plants, evergreen shrubs throughout the area, have some type of it's an alkaloid that acts as a bug defense, and caffeine is usually one. So we call it caffeine in coffee. We call it theine in tea. Um, we call it uh, matine in mate. It's all essentially the same alkaloid, and it's a stimulant that, um, that makes the bugs kind of freak out, and they don't, they don't like it. So... Um, so the coffee tree um, will blossom, and each blossom will become a cherry. So, and within each cherry, there are two seeds. And when the seeds uh, form together, they, they form side by side, and that's why you have a flat side to the coffee bean. Sometimes only one seed forms, and it's called a pea berry. Other times, more than two will uh, form. Uh, we'll call it triage. And if you ever get, uh, particularly like um, um, coffees out of Columbia, sometimes you'll see you know, like it looks like a little shell of a coffee bean. We call those mother beans, and that's actually the one that's, that's growing around the third bean. So that's the, we call it triage. And usually with the, uh, the triage coffee, since the seeds are smaller, they'll get separated out and end up as, as local consumption. And we actually use the word triage to also mean trash. So it just, it just becomes coffee bits. And a typical coffee tree will produce about, about 1,500 cherries per year. And it's about the equivalent of about a pound of coffee. So one tree equals one, one pound of coffee. So it's a lot of trees, yeah. And I think uh, we now... Uh, yearly, there's about 110 million bags of coffee, and each bag is about 150 pounds of peach. So there are a few coffee trees around the world. So. But as I said, uh, coffee was, while it was discovered in Ethiopia, it was first cultivated in Yemen, and it was uh, mostly um, cultivated by the Turks, and it was considered the, uh, uh, the Muslim alternative to wine. And when the uh, crusaders came against the, uh, the Turkish hordes, uh, they felt that this was the beverage that gave them such great fighting skills. It was a prized 
um, booty when they sacked different uh, Turkish strongholds and got some of the coffee beans and brought it back to Vienna and Venice and all those pretty cool places. So anyway, but the Turks were very guarded about their coffee trees, and so they made it against the law to export seeds that were not already treated, so that way you couldn't cultivate it. But of course, as any kind of, you know, value product, um, it got snuck out, and some coffee trees were snuck over into Indonesia uh, by the Dutch, and, um, and it was the Indonesian islands of, uh, the, of Java, Sumatra, Sulawesi. Uh, they were all just kind of collectively called Java um, coffees. So we got our, well, really our second cinnamon. Uh, we often, uh, the, in Yemen, the port of Mocha was the, was the main port where all the coffee was sent out of. So Yemen coffee was called Mocha, and then Indonesian coffees were called Java. You put together the two, you got... Mocha Java, world's oldest coffee blend. So there you go. So now, uh, the Dutch um, ended up cultivating coffee throughout the Indonesian islands, and it became the largest exporter of coffee uh, throughout the 1600s and 1700s. And at the time, uh, the Dutch uh, had been the biggest trading conglomerate around the world, and the French were kind of coming up in power, and, and the French ended up having the largest... Uh, naval fleet and you know to paraphrase history very poorly uh, the French threatened the the Dutch the Dutch said okay no we won't do it and so they signed a treaty and two coffee trees were in that treaty that ended up in the Royal Botanical Gardens in Paris and it's the seedlings from those two trees that went to the new world and propagated all the coffee trees throughout the new world now, these trees were first cultivated on the, on the French colony called Reunion, which at the time was called Bourbon. And even though it's exactly the same trees as the ones that we come from uh, Indonesia, since they were separated um, at a pretty early stage and then developed kind of separated from there, we consider it a, a, a separate variety of the Arabica trees. We call those Arabica Bourbons. And the trees that grew in Indonesia and, and propagated up to India, we call those Arabica typicas. And so those are your first. But nowadays there are hundreds of what we call cultivars of the Arabica tree, because the Arabica tree, um, it will grow. Um, it will grow true to seeds. So whatever seed you plant, is the coffee trees that you will get out of, off that tree. And then occasionally it is. Um, it's an. Um, uh, botanist will know the, the actually it's heliotropic inbreeder it pollinates itself so occasionally a mutation will occur and those uh, in a seed and the trees will grow to that true to that seed and sometimes these mutations will have beneficial uh, characteristics particularly um, with uh, growing in different climates so that's where all these different types of cultivars have been developed and there's been all these various hybrids all out throughout the years however um, in Indonesia especially, and, and uh, actually in Sri Lanka as well, um, the coffee tree, because it was being grown in, uh, in a large areas, particularly at lower elevations, it's, again, as an evergreen shrub, it's very susceptible to not only bugs but also diseases. And, in fact, there's a, a disease called the rust disease. It, what it is is it's a disease that affects the leaf of the plant and kind of turns it brown, so it almost looks like the coffee tree is rusting, so we call it coffee rust. It wiped out all the trees in Sri Lanka, 
And so Sri Lanka said, heck with this, we're going to grow tea from now on. So you don't get coffee out of Sri Lanka. But in Indonesia, when it wiped out most of the coffee trees in the lower elevations in Indonesia. And what they did is they went looking for a suitable replacement tree, something that was hardier. And as I mentioned, coffee grows uh, indigenous to northern Africa, and there are several different varieties of that, of that coffee tree as a species level. And there was a coffee tree on the, on the western side of Africa that, that had a lot of really great attributes. It grew at lower elevations. It grew twice as many cherries. It was very resistant to bugs and disease, so much so it developed a nickname of, of Robusta because it was such a robust tree. And better yet for us, it had twice as much caffeine. <laughs> there was only one small drawback to the tree. It tasted like mm, boiled tires. <laughs> so it was kind of an offensive tasting thing, but um, you know, who cares? It was cheap, and by golly, you could grow a lot of it. So most of the coffee in Indonesia uh, got converted over to this Robusta tree, but there were still trees that were growing at the higher elevation that were the old Arabica trees. Okay, so then we had coffee that came over into the New World, and uh, the, the Brazilians were the first to really take on the Dutch and the Indonesians for sheer output. And in Brazil, um, instead of having these really kind of um, steep mountainsides, they had a lot of these rolling plains. So what they did is they, did, they got a mutation tree that was a dwarf variety, and they grew it like, well, like we grow apples. It was just nothing but coffee trees. Pack them really close together and grow a, a boatload of them. Now, these were Arabica trees, but the Brazilians uh, seemed to kind of um, uh, give the Robusta tree a run for its money about how bad you can make coffee taste. So bad that in the world of coffee, when we, when we talked about trading of coffee, there were Brazils, and then there was everything else. And then with the Robustas, there was Brazils, Robustas, and everything else. Milds, we, we called it. So uh, Brazil mastered the art of growing boatloads of coffee and soon became the largest producer of coffee. And, but the thing was is that with all this production of coffee, the prices of coffee just collapsed. There was, there was no value to it whatsoever. So countries, particularly in Central America uh, and Northern South America, that kind of came a little bit later, they took a different tact. And instead of deciding on growing a bunch of crappy coffee, they decided, let's try to grow coffee, lots of you know, good coffee. So they, what they did was they looked at the way not only where the coffee tree grows as far as in the mountains and along the shade, but also they began looking at the way that coffee cherry was processed. Remember I said it's a seed of a cherry. So it's actually the fruit uh, of the cherry that's removed. And in the old days, like in Indonesia and Brazil and those different places, they would simply pick the cherries off the trees, put them out in the sun to dry, let the cherries dry good and hard, and then husk the cherries off, the, off those uh, seeds and end up, end up with the coffee seeds minus the fruit. Well, sitting out in the hot sun, especially in these humid environments, allowed for a lot of ferment, mold, other stuff kind of in there, and it really affected the flavor of the coffee. So what the, the, what the people did in, in uh, northern South America and Central America, they developed another system. Since water was very plentiful in these areas because of all the, the melt-off from the mountains, they developed a method called the wet method. 
So when they picked the cherry, they would soak the cherry in, into a, in a big tank of water, get, get it good and soft, and then run it through a pulping machine that would remove the cherries right away. And then the seeds that were left over, they would let them sit in a tank for about 12 hours or so, and an enzyme that's, that's naturally occurring would eat away at the other parts of the skin that was around the seed, and they could kind of tell when the coffee was ready, but just by kind of, you would reach in, and a good, a good uh, mill, mill manager would just be able to tell by the feel of the, the seeds in the fermentation tank if they're ready to go, and then they'd get washed the rest of the way from there. And then with the washing, what they could do is they could send the, these seeds down these troughs, and any seed that came from an over-ripened cherry would float to the top, so it could be collected off. We called them floaters. And any seed from an under-ripened cherry would sink, and they would get separated off. So we had a way of separating out the over-ripened and the under-ripened cherries seeds that had a kind of an off flavor, so we could get a better flavor out of it. And then from there, they could take those now seeds and put them out in the sun to dry. And there got a much better, milder-tasting coffee. So when, as I mentioned, Kenya, they were one of the last countries to, to uh, introduce coffee growing. And so what they ended up doing was kind of a, a hybrid model between Brazil and Central America. So it was the same kind of full sun rows of coffee trees model that Brazil did. But instead of using those dwarf variety trees, they used a better variety of coffee tree. And they used a wet method Well, hello. <laughs> uh, to to clean the coffee and and clean the coffee seeds, and they devised a very unique system that would encourage quality. In that they, when the coffee lots would come to the uh, to the stations, the the buying stations, the coffee would be auctioned, and so the coffee buyers would come along and they would taste the different lots of coffee, and then by their decisions of what coffees tasted like, they would bid on different coffees. And so this, in this manner, it was kind of encouraged a higher quality coffee. And so even though it was a sun-grown coffee, it was a very cleanly sun-grown coffee, but it's because of that sun-growing that creates that unique kind of whiny, almost apple peel kind of quality that Kenya coffees have that you're either going to like or not like. It's kind of one of those decisions, you know, like uh, what are those IBUs and a, a hoppy beer, right? You see, decides whether you like, if you like that kind of, that tart, it's malic acid is what, what the acid is. Whereas in Central and South America, the acid that was prized was citric acid, more of a lemon orange uh, acidity, and that told us that everything was done, done correctly. So that's Kenya. Getting back to Sumatra, though, since Sumatra was such an earlier model of coffee growing, they were still doing the old model of growing coffee and letting the, the cherries ripen out in the, uh, dry out in the sun. So what you ended up with was sometimes, if everything was done correctly, it was an awesome coffee. Kind of have clove, cinnamon, cardamom, nutmeg, all these kind of spicy aromas to it. But more often than not, what you ended up with was something that tasted like dirty socks and toe jam. <laughs> so it was one of those coffees that, you know, if particularly those of you that had experience with it, and it was such a great coffee, but it was a hard coffee to replicate. And this affected the prices of Sumatra coffee. Even though it had an, a, 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 a reputation, 
it had kind of a two-edged reputation to it. It could be great, but it could be something awful. And you never know, as a coffee buyer, what you're going to get. Because they could send you a sample of a lot, but it wouldn't be necessarily indicative of the entire lot. Because instead of being big estate farms like a Kenya and Brazil, these were all smallholder farms, usually no more than a couple of hectares at the most. So you had a wide variety of, of techniques being used in farming, uh, what some, some farmers paying good attention to their farms, other farmers not so much. And so there was always kind of a wild variability to Sumatra coffee that if it could be cool if everything was cleaned up right, but, also, but it could also make for a very bad cup of coffee. And so this ultimately kind of had a negative impact on many people's experiences of Sumatran coffee, and probably yourself. Maybe you, uh, you two got into Sumatran coffee, but then bought a few pounds, and like, this stuff is, I don't know what's going on here. It's, it's bad. And even as myself, as a coffee roaster, to be honest with you, when I first was introduced to Sumatra coffee, I thought, that's interesting. No thanks. It was just too risky because I could, like I said, I could get a sample of that coffee and get into a bag of it. The next bag would be something totally different. Or maybe get into a bag and halfway through the bag, it would change. And so as a roaster, I, I couldn't depend on it. So I ignored it. Well, this was a problem uh, that a lot of people were trying to deal with. And it, like I said, it impacted the, the price of the coffee. So um, back in the, the uh, 19, early 1980s, um, the Indonesian government formed a partnership with the Dutch government, and they decided to put in a full wet processing mill in northern Sumatra, in the, in the Gayo area of northern Sumatra. And the Gayo area was, was very well known for the quality of the coffee trees, but was also well known for the inconsistency of its results. So the idea was with this wet mill is that they could, they could process up the coffee to world-class specialty coffee standards and end up with a, with, a, with a really good, reliable coffee. The trouble was is that, um, for reasons I'm not really sure exactly why, but uh, it was, a, it was a, almost like an experimental mill, and they decided to make it super-washed coffee. So it had an additional two tanks, additional two washing tanks, to clean the coffee. Maybe they just felt the coffee was super dirty, so we needed to do an extra bath. Well, the problem was twofold. One, this slowed it, the production of the coffee trees. It would take two weeks in these baths for the coffees to be ready to go out into the patio beds. And even then, the coffee's seeds would be so soft from being in the water for so long, they had to keep it in a covered patio first before putting it out in the full sun to dry out. So it slowed the rate and it ultimately slowed down the amount of production that the, 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 uh, the mill could do. And the problem was is that the mill was very labor intensive. They had something like 2,000 people working at this uh, mill and were bottlenecked by the amount of coffee they could produce. So it, it made for a very expensive production. The other side to it was because it was this double washing, it tended to kind of overclean the coffee. So for a lot of coffee connoisseurs, it's like, well, it's great, it's clean, but you've kind of cleaned out all its character. So yeah, a, lot of, a lot of old timers are like, ah, you know, I like dirty socks Sumatra, so I'm just going to keep on buying the, this, the dirty stuff. And so it had a hard time. And then to top it all off, 
1988, we had the collapse of the International Coffee Agreement. So what this meant is that before 1988, all the producing countries in the world had an agreement with all the consuming countries of the world that the producing countries would produce X amount of coffees per year and the consuming countries would limit the, the amount of imports of coffees per year. Now, this, this was a way to kind of keep prices up on, on coffee, um, and it worked pretty well. Coffee prices stayed uh, at, a, at a pretty stable amount, but the problem was is that the, there were non-member uh, countries who could buy as much coffee as they wanted and dump it on the market uh, otherwise. And there were countries, well, two countries in particular, who didn't like the, uh, the philosophy of a regulated market. Uh, one of those countries was Brazil. Bet you can't guess who the other country was. USA, yes, because, you know, these, these uh, market manipulations are always bad, so we need to get rid of it. So without the participation of U.S. and Brazil, the, the agreement collapsed, and the price of coffee erased 50% almost overnight. And, a dump, and the other problem with it is that uh, part of the ICA agreement was is that trash was not coffee. But without the agreement, trash now coffee. So not only did we have more coffee available, we also had bags and bags of coffee trash that were being counted as coffee on the world commodity market. So the, the commodity prices dropped. And this pretty much signaled the death knell of this wet processing mill. It stumbled along until about 2001 when it finally shut down completely. And for me as a, as a coffee roaster, I was buying that Gallo Mountain coffee because even though I, I agreed with, with uh, the detractors that it seemed to be a little, little too clean, it was a lot better than Dirty Socks and Toe Jam. So I was buying that coffee. And after 2001, I just gave up on Sumatran coffee. Trouble is, I have lots of folks come in like, you got any Sumatran coffee? I love Sumatran coffee. That's the best coffee in the world. The greatest coffee. i got to have that Sumatran. Why don't you have that Sumatran coffee? I really want that Sumatran coffee. Wasn't going to buy it. Not going to do it. Well, about five years ago, four to five years ago, um, we were offered what was classed as a fully washed Sumatra. And so I had it brought in, and it wasn't quite the same as that Gallo Mountain, but it was pretty darn good. So we, we bought 50 bags of it, and it sold well. But it wasn't really well sorted out at the end. So I had an opportunity to meet with the, the president of that cooperative. And I simply put, a, I uh, actually took along a sample of clean coffee with me. And I, I had a sample of his coffee. I said, see how this coffee is all uniform, the same color? And this coffee, has got, you got these little black beans in there. Because you get rid of it. He goes, oh, yeah, that's, that's called triple picking. Uh, it'll cost you 10 cents more a pound. I said, no problem. You do that. So the next year, we got triple picked, fully washed, processed. But I was kind of confused because I knew that the wet processing mill closed in 2001. So Armia was the name of the, uh, the president of the cooperative. So I said, Armia, um, the wet, there was only one wet mill in, in Sumatra, a guy on mountain. He goes, yes, that's true. I said, and it closed down in 2001. Yeah, that's true. This is fully wet coffee. Yep, this is fully wet coffee. The, the wet processing mill closed in 2001. Yes. How is this fully wet coffee? 
Well, what they've done is uh, Lutheran World Relief sponsored uh, a couple of projects in Gaia Mountain where they, 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 uh, they built small wet pulping mills. It's not a full wet, wet mill, but it was a wet pulping station. So this way, the, 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 um, the coffee farmers could bring their cherry and have the cherries pulped immediately, and then from there, a kind of a quick bath, and then they would they lay it out in the sun. So it was kind of somewhere in between a full wet and a dry process. We, a lot of times we call this semi-wet process because it's not doesn't have the troughs, doesn't have the fermentation tanks, and um, but it's but it's cleaner than the other model. And uh, I said, well, that's that's pretty cool. But I used to buy this coffee from this, the old mill at Gaia Mountain, and it had a particular kind of uh, flavor quality that, that this one doesn't. This one, this, this Sumatra is more nutmeg cardamom. What I'm looking for is more clove and pipe tobacco. And he goes, I know what you want, and I can do something for you. I said, yeah, but, you know, because with the wet mill, he goes, I know what you want. I used to work at that mill. He was the mill manager, of all things, of that Gaia Mountain mill. So he goes, I'm going to do something for you. And what he ended up doing was essentially faking a full wet mill for us. He built some extra patio beds out for us. And so um, we agreed to 60 bags of coffee. And so they would separate our coffee out and do a special run uh, of our coffees and then do this all the way through. And this last uh, February, I had an opportunity to go and visit uh, in Sumatra because, you know, it was, everything was going really well, but you always got to kind of see things for yourself, right? So when I got there, uh, in fact, I got to the, uh, the little pulping station, and when I got to the pulping station, I noticed that um, the cherries were not being sorted. It was green green underripened cherries, ripened cherries, black cherries, it was everything, just going dumping into this pulping, pulping mill. So I, I, was, I was talking to the young man who was running the mill. I said, so is it always just everything coming through? He goes, yeah, that's how we do it. Although two months ago we had to do this special run where we could only use ripened cherries. I'm like, I know whose coffee that was. And then another thing is that they, had, they have a habit in a... In, in a Sumatra to um, well they, they okay so there's a cherry I didn't give you all that so there's a cherry and then there's another skin around the seed called a parchment skin and normally we dry the coffee beans out to down to 12% moisture and then hole off that parchment skin and then it gets bagged and sent away but in Sumatra for whatever reason they decide to do it around 50 to 55% while the seeds are really 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 soft and they call it gilling basa or wet hulling and it it for whatever reason they think that that makes the coffee better but usually what it does is it smushes the beans because the beans are kind of soft and if you ever looked at Sumatra sometimes you see these kind of weird shaped beans that's why it was because it was mold hold when it was still wet well with our coffee that's why I talked about they put out these separate patios so they could dry ours down to 12% well anyway I'm at the the hulling station and I see all this wet coffee getting hold and I said so is it always this wet when you, when you guys are milling? He goes, yeah, this is the way we do it. Although about two months ago, we had to do this other coffee, and they had to clean it all down. I'm like, okay, that's what I'm talking about. And then finally, when we get to the final sort area, uh, this is where they do the, the, what they call hand sorting. So after the coffee's been completely milled, they, they literally go by hand and sort it through. 
and they had two of these two giant stations. So there'd be one area where there'd be uh, this is, uh, women sitting around just picking through the beans. They'd bag that all up and go to another area. And I noticed they, they didn't really have a lot of room. So I said, so do you guys only have like the two places where you pick through? They said, yeah, that's how we do it. We go two times. Although two months ago, we had to do the special one where we had a triple picket. So it's kind of nice to have that kind of, um, you know, kind of validation, especially when you don't have it's, you know, uh, the other people kind of watching around. You just kind of randomly ask somebody. So there you go. So that that became what we know as our our coffee. That's the coffee from Sumatra. As a fully wet process. Now, to kind of sweeten the pot, uh, while we were there, unbeknownst to us, Armia's um, sister was putting together. A women's group. And this is kind of a, um, it's a new movement going out throughout the coffee world where many women uh, in in coffee growing communities, um, well, they they lack a lot of rights. Uh, Many of them are not allowed to own their land, not allowed to have a a bank account. So essentially uh, what happens is that the in all reality, the women do all the work. They're the ones tending the trees. They pick the cherries. They bag it all up. The men take it to the, the station, get paid. And some of that coffee might get, make it back, or some of that money might get, make it back to the, to the house. Or they might stop by the bar and have a few drinks with their friends. Well, uh, there's been a movement within coffee-growing communities to have women-controlled co-ops. So they would band all the women together, and now the women completely control the coffee all the way to getting payment, and, the, and, the, and that way the, the, the money gets all the way back into the household. And this has been so successful in many of these communities, even in these communities which are traditionally very machismo, uh, the men were like, yeah, well, you know, they're better with money, so <laughs> this has worked out better. So... Armia, uh, his sister, Rizkani, was forming their own women's cooperative in Gaio. And they just said, you know, Mark would probably be into that kind of stuff. So they just sourced all our coffee from the very first women's co-op in Gaioland. So the coffee is called Coco Wagayo, which simply means women's coffee. And that's the kind of coffee that, um, that uh, we are able to kind of bring in. So essentially... Um, I love it when I get my timing right. Wrap it all up. Um, that's how far I'm willing to go for a good cup of coffee. <laughs> now, luckily for you, you don't have to go too far because it's over there. <laughs> okay, I wanted to kind of quickly go through that, and that way we could have some questions. So if you have any questions, oh, we want to do something before that? I do. We're going to take a quick break so people can get another beer or piece of chocolate cake. I think it's all gone. And uh, we'll come back for a Q&A here in just about 10 minutes. Cool. Nice. So think about your burning questions. Hello, hello. Hello. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> We're going to bring Mark back up for some Q&A. And before we do that, earlier Barb was mentioning that, um, that Brett and Deanne own the Windy Saddle and they're part of the group of us that organize Golden Beer Talks. And real quick, I'm going to introduce the other people who are in the room who are part of that team as well. So Barb is part of that team. 
Over here, Carl Gould is part of that team. Greg Reed is part of that team. Where did Pamela? Just left. Pamela just left, so yeah, whoops. And then Bart over here. <laughs> and then I'm Whitney. So we're going to um, have you come back up, Mark. Preguntas? Questions? Oh, this whole table, is a, this whole table looks questionable. No, it's the same question. Wow, that is a big question. Yes, exactly. So the question is, is uh, can you talk about roasting? Um, I'll try to, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, okay. Yeah, I know, right? So um, roasting machines, okay. I, I know, okay, we roast different, like, um, so roasting machines are mostly of a kind. They're large cylinder drums, and the, the uh, drums are heated from below, and the drum, uh, the heat energy from the drum is transmitted into the beans. And so what happens is you, uh, you heat the drum up for a good 45 minutes or so, dump a bunch of green coffee in there that has 12% moisture by weight. Excuse me. That was a carbonated soda which will absorb all the heat from the roaster. So we have what they call an S-curve. So they, that's the temperature, the, all the temperature drops away, and then the, the coffee comes roasting and brings the roaster back up. So the idea with roasting is we want to drive off the moisture of the, of the green beans and roast the dried bean. That's, that's essentially what roasting is. And we roast the dried bean to a color or temperature for a desired, desired flavor profile. So there's... Uh, coffee beans will have uh, different tastes depending on how light or dark you roast. And uh, depending where you finish off in that roasting will dictate it between. So generally speaking, lighter roasted coffees are more acidic. Darker roaster uh, to dark coffees can be more bitter. So and in between is the aromatic coffees. So uh, it just kind of depends where a roaster wants to be. Now, we don't use a drum roaster because we think drum roasters are dumb. <laughs> because if you're trying to drive off moisture, uh, having it sit in a drum for five, eight minutes while the drum's trying to recapture its heat energy is kind of an inefficient way of going about it. And moreover, the more that coffee, the organic compounds of coffee, heat, and water mix together, the more acid you will have. So if you remember back to those old greasy spoon restaurants that used to leave their coffee decanters on the burner for hours on end, and you get that super, you know, like, blah. Well, that, yeah, that's called quinic acidulation, and that can happen from, you know, the sitting on the burner with, while it's, you know, just cooking in, in the pot. It can also happen in a roasting machine that has poor heat transference, and that's that bitey kind of quinine kind of acid that we'll have. And you probably may have experienced roasts that are just that way because it's a, it's a poor heat transfer in the roaster. Uh, our roaster was invented in 1976 by a, a chemical engineer. Um, actually, he's, he's one of the guys that worked on the instant coffee project, made coffee, instant coffee more soluble. And he worked, in a, uh, he worked in Brazil, and he worked in a plant where 
uh, cherries came in one side of the mill and jars of instant coffee came out the other end. And his job was to make sure that the instant coffee was coming out consistent. But the trouble was is that they would have to roast for like three days straight in order to get enough coffee to run the instant coffee uh, machines. And these roasters would overheat, they'd blow bearings, they'd, the coffee came out all different you know, roast levels, and he goes, and he looked at the roasters he's like these things are stupid. So he designed his own roasting machine that did away with the drum, and used uh, a levitated uh, a column of hot air to levitate the beans in to convectively roast the coffee. So again, if we're trying to drive off that moisture, convection uh, heat is much more effective. So instead of having that S-curve, we're able to drive off the moisture of the coffee beans within a minute and get to roasting the coffee and get everything done in nine minutes. And by having that shorter window of uh, coffee being exposed to temperature, it increases the amount of aromatics. Hence, we are very aromatically obsessed. Uh, we hence, hence why the coffee is in the freezer here, because uh, the more that coffee is exposed to temperature, the more those aromatics are going to, to expand and dissipate. That's why the grocery, you know, the grocery store aisle in the coffee area smells so great. That's all the flavor of the coffee that's no longer in the beans. So, so yeah, exactly. Freezing is good. All right. Good answer? Okay. Yes. Oh, I know. Oh, prepare the coffee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. Uh, it's called the AeroPress. Uh, it is my all-time favorite coffee brewer. And essentially what it is, it, it looks like a, um, it's just uh, two pieces of plastic. Uh, it has like a little screen that you put a paper filter in the bottom. You put finely ground coffee in. Uh, into the, the container, uh, and essentially you make shots of coffee, much in the same way that we make shots of coffee out of espresso, although it makes coffee not espresso. It makes a concentrated cup of coffee. And so it's a, and it's a siphon that you push down and press through, hence uh, the name AeroPress. And it's using air pressure to force the water through, and it, it makes it, it's, it's brilliant. It is different. So a French press, you simply pour in the water on top of the coffee grounds and let it get steep for one or you know, three minutes and then pressing the grounds out. This is your, uh, the coffee is only being saturated in the coffee grounds and water for about 10 to 15 seconds, and then you're pressing the water through, and that takes about 30 seconds. So you get a very rich aromatic coffee uh, without it's sitting around. It's, uh, and you get a shot. Uh, the upside is it's, it's a great personal coffee maker. It's not good if you're making cups for everybody because it's like, oh, you want one too? <laughs> so it's much more of a personal coffee maker. Uh, if it's not, if you're, then if um, failing that, you're not a personal coffee maker, um, great coffee is a function of dwell time and brew rate. Dwell time and brew rate. So we want the coffee to, uh, to dwell all together and brew at the same time. And no matter how many cups of coffee you're making, we want to brew it all within four minutes. So you've probably, uh, you've probably been told, you know, what's the best filter to have, right? 
cone filter versus flat bottom filter, right? And everybody says, oh, you must have a cone filter, right? You've heard that a million times. What kind of filter is on that coffee brew over there? I know. We always ask. Right. Oh, thank you. Okay, so um, the reason why we're asking you that is because um, the, in a typical electric coffee maker, you're not brewing, you're not heating all the water in mass. You're heating a little water, sending it through. Heating a little water, sending it through. So the water kind of dribbles through the top. And if it's a flat bottom filter, the coffee kind of hits the middle and slowly dampens out and just makes a bad cup of coffee. So what they decided to do is take that filter and, and bring it up. That way, as it dribbles through, it makes a better bad cup of coffee. <laughs> but if you want to make a good cup of coffee, what you want to do is get heat all your water at once and get all the coffee and water brewing together. So that's why we talk about a pour-over method where you have like a Chemex coffee maker or a Melita because we get all those coffee grounds. And you want to do, what you want to do is... Uh, the, your brew rate is a function of how much coffee you're using and how finely you're ground. So obviously the more coffee you use, the slower it's going to go through. The more finely it's ground, the slower it wants to go through, it's going to go through. You want to use about two tablespoons per five ounces of coffee. For some reason, the coffee industry thinks a cup of coffee is five ounces. So it's two tablespoons per five ounces. And then adjust your grind so that that way, with the amount of coffee you're using, that you're getting it all done in four minutes. And that will produce flavorful, aromatic, not acidic, not bitter. If it's bitter, you're using too much coffee or your grind is too fine. If it's thin and flavorless, flavorless, not enough coffee or too coarse of a grind. And you just kind of adjust it on up from there. Yes? I've heard that too. Uh, I used to hear that, but that's true now. But it used to be true that um, you could only dark roast high-quality coffee beans because since you're dark roasting deeper, that means that you're having greater uh, breakdown of the coffee beans. And if you use a low-grown coffee beans, they're softer, they're not as dense, and they'll break down and become more carbony. So if you use higher-quality beans, they will stand up. They're higher density, and they will have... Uh, a greater potential at a dark roast. Dark roasting, light roasting, there is, there, there is an appropriate roast for each coffee. And the ideal roast is where everything kind of comes together. So as I mentioned earlier, there's, uh, lighter roasted coffees have more acidity. There's a higher acid content. Then you have aroma. Then you have body. And it used to be, you've probably seen a lot, like we'd say, well-balanced. You ever see that on? Well, what they meant is that we balanced out the acidity, aroma, and body. That's what we're trying to do is get everything balanced out. And so that's different for different coffees, depending on the density and the, and the um, kind of the chemical makeup of that bean where it has an ideal flavor. So... Like, as an example, uh, a coffee from Ethiopia, Yerka Chafe, has this very um, bloss small blossom, jasmine blossom kind of flowery aroma that if you would lose if you dark roasted it. Conversely, the Sumatra has this deep clove pipe tobacco that you've got to get to because if, before it tastes like that, it tastes like 
paper bags and cardboard, right? So too light of a roast on a Sumatra, you, get, you end up with that, where too dark of a roast on an Ethiopia, you'll trash off the aromatics. So it's, it's not one or the other. It's you want to tailor the roast according to the bean itself. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, the oils are just a natural byproduct of roasting. And uh, the darker you roast, as you roast darker, the bean swells. And the darker the roast, the more the bean swells, which means that there's greater cell wall porosity, and it simply allows more of those oils to reach the surface. That's all that's happening. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel good. No, it, it's, it's not. I've heard every possible permutation of why not to freeze um, of coffee, and it's usually around the oils, but we must remember that oil and water don't mix. That oil is just a, a vegetable-style oil. It, it is not a flavor compound of the coffee. So, yeah, it's just, it's glistening. Oh, okay. Okay, you did. All right, but you changed my. Okay, Barb. Okay, what do you do with the um, cherry garden as a byproduct? Uh, no, they they. It depends on the country. Nowadays, they're trying to mulch it and use it as fertilizer. Uh, but for the longest time, they were isolating it and quarantining it because uh, it was a carrier for insect, you know, bugs. And so, in some countries, they were purposely, you know, getting, you know, trying to keep it away. But that's that's changing. These days, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the few f- food products in the world where the fruit is discarded and the seed is saved. Weird. Thank you, everybody. It's my pleasure.